from Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. The ideology that, that ISIS has spawned and has advanced is already, in a sense, the a genie that is out of the bottle. The director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Nick Rasmussen, warned about it on this very program months ago. The attacker in the New York Halloween bike path terror attack said that he was inspired by ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. So where is Baghdadi? He's hiding. He's underground. He's, he's afraid to come out. We'll get the latest details on the search for Baghdadi from General Paul Funk, commander of the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve. Also, new details on how ISIS is using cyberspace is impacting the fight against terror. They have been very effective at exploiting the internet to propagate their pernicious radicalizing propaganda. And I don't think we should expect that to stop. That's Sir Julian King, a commissioner from the European Commission. That and much, much more on the fight against terrorism. Coming up on this edition of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. In our last episode of Target USA, we talked specifically about the Halloween terror attack in New York and with Tamar El-Nuri, an undercover Muslim FBI agent who's infiltrated several terrorist organizations to figure out how they work, and he's played a key role in the derailing of several terror plots. In the days after the Halloween attack in New York, it occurred to me I had a conversation in late June of 2017 with Nick Rasmussen, director of the National Counterterrorism Center. The conversation was insightful. He was predictive, almost prescient, as he talked about what might happen in the U.S. as a result of ISIS being pinched and changing their tactics. So now, I want to bring you a part of that conversation. It's a reminder of what we're up against. It also sets the table for the rest of our show, which deals with ISIS in the here and now. I think if uh, if I were to wake up one day and, and find out that a, a terrorist attack or a terrorist incident had happened here in the United States, my first instinct would be that it was probably most likely carried out by someone who was a what we call a homegrown violent extremist. Not someone who is necessarily a member of a terrorist organization deployed from overseas or sent here to to infiltrate the United States, but rather someone who may have lived here their entire life, may have been born here, but certainly um, has been part of life here in America, but who over time became exposed to extremist material and became radicalized and then looked to carry out an act of terror. It's that kind of individual who we are, I would, I would argue, um, seeing far more frequently here in the United States. Now, the tactics of these homegrown violent extremists are evolving just like their skill levels have over the years. And what we're seeing a lot of, and we have in recent years, has been vehicles. And um, as one particular 
official, I think it was uh, one of the British officials saying that they've turned ordinary, everyday tools into weapons. But I want to ask you about your thoughts on vehicles and your concerns about that tactic being used here. Sure. Uh, Over time, one of the concerns we've seen um, in addressing the threat posed by homegrown violent extremists or individuals acting uh, as, as terrorists is that they will often use whatever tools or capabilities are easily within their grasp uh, when carrying out an attack, whether that's a knife or a gun or increasingly uh, a motor vehicle. Um, some of that comes from, from initiative on their own part, but some of that comes up uh, from instruction and guidance they have received from terrorist organizations overseas like ISIS. Uh, as it became more difficult for for um, extremist individuals to travel to Iraq, places like Iraq and Syria to join the fight, the instructions instead became do what you can to strike out uh, in your own environment and use whatever tools you have at your disposal. And so an individual could, um, on their own, mount an attack using literally only what what he he or she had within reach, and a vehicle certainly falls in that category. Our challenge now is to help state and local governments and other police organizations figure out what are the best tactics to use to try to prevent those kinds of attacks from from proving lethal. Uh, And and I would argue that that's a big challenge right now. Um, We want to preserve the way we we live uh, freely here in the United States. We don't want to change the way we do business. You ought to be able to go to a Fourth of July parade, a... uh, a concert in an outdoor setting or uh, or any kind of public gathering, you ought to be able to do that without fear of potentially um, suffering uh, at the hands of a terrorist. And yet in the modern era, you have to at least ask that question in many cases uh, of what kind of vulnerability do we have. So vehicles in this country, I mean, there are so many vehicles and so many different types of vehicles and so much road and so much space where that can be applied and used, I imagine you have to work really hard to sort of figure out what to to recommend to the state and locals. Give us a sense of how difficult that process is. I I would argue, I would, what I would say is that our focus is mainly on trying to to provide advice on safety and security of public gatherings, because as you suggest, you know, making the road, the highways and the byways safe all across the United States, that's a big enough challenge even without introducing a terrorism ele- element to it. Just uh, the issues of traffic and road safety obviously are something we've been dealing with as a society for many years. But our goal is to make sure that state and local law enforcement authorities understand um, and can prepare for the potential threat posed by an individual who might use a vehicle to try to uh, target um, vulnerable a vulnerable population in, in in a public in a public gathering like the like the like I mentioned a moment ago, whether that's a a, a parade, a concert, uh, a high school football game, uh, you know, literally any public gathering. A lone wolf or a lone actor, as you've you've said on numerous occasions, can pop up anywhere. One of the most recent attempts or situations that we can think of is the situation in Flint, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Is there anything specific that came out of that that you can can point to? That 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 helps you f- figure out um, this threat right now and determine how to move forward in terms of your attempts to prevent this kind of thing or learn about it at least. I mean, I, with, I'll be a little bit careful in what I say about the Flint, Michigan attack because again, it just happened within just the last few days, and 
we're certainly following the, the lead of, of the local law enforcement authorities and the FBI in trying to understand what exactly went into that attack. But I will say that it does bear many of the hallmarks of what I've been talking about uh, in the course of our discussion. Um, an individual who may have become radicalized on his own, uh, seeking to, to lash out and, and carry out a violent act using um, again, only the, the the tools and capabilities readily available at his immediate disposal. So it fits, in that sense, a model, even though we've still got a lot to learn about what went into the, the thinking of the individual and what the exact motives were. But it does tell us that this is this kind of attack, something that we've been seeing with much greater frequency in Europe, is also something that we have to worry about and, and potentially be on guard against here in the United States. There have been a number of different places where attacks have happened in, in, in Britain and France and in, in, in other parts of Europe. How do you describe this wave of terror attacks, uh, inspired, directed, enabled, or is it a mix? And, and why do you feel the way you feel about what's been going on? Well, one of the things we do uh, from a um, from an intelligence perspective is try to understand exactly where on the spectrum each of these attacks falls, whether it was something where ISIS or some other group actually directed the individuals, provided them with capability, provided them with real guidance and instruction or, or command and control, or at the other extreme, if it fits much more the, the, the model of, of the inspired attack, where it's an individual acting on his or her own with having been maybe mobilized or motivated by the ideology of a group like ISIS or a group like al-Qaeda. And so trying to figure out um, where on the spectrum each of these attacks falls is an important part of what we're trying to do. Now, I would argue in some ways that's an important exercise for us in the intelligence community because it gives us clues about how we can prevent attacks like this in the future. I also understand that making that distinction about whether something was inspired or enabled or directed probably doesn't um, feel um, it doesn't make the attack feel any different or, or make it any less tragic uh, uh, if, if there has been loss of life or if there has been injury caused by these attacks. Um, to, the, to the victims of these kinds of attacks, I don't think it matters whether an individual was, was inspired or directed or enabled. But to us, to law enforcement, to intelligence, uh, to, national to the national security commu community, understanding why and how these attacks happen uh, will help us develop the tools that we need um, to do a better job of preventing them from happening. One of the things we do in the media quite often is we get a little too wrapped up in trying to play detective and trying to be analyst and reporter, and we should really not do that. We should just leave it to you guys who are the professionals. Um, and sometimes we find ourselves in situations where we simply don't understand what is taking place, and we resort to things that we've heard. In, from your perspective, and I'm not asking you to advise the, the press on how to deal with this kind of thing, but f from your perspective, based on the work you do every day and the work you've done for, for decades now, uh, much of it pioneering work in the intelligence community, how should we as regular citizens view what we saw unfolding on the streets of Manchester, uh, you know, the Westminster attack, and how should we view these situations in terms of our role as citizens, uh, you know, in terms of playing some role in stopping it? Well, I think that's one of the things we've seen evolve over time with um, the, the counterterrorism work that we do here in the United States. I think there was probably a time at which most of our effort in the terrorism world was focused on 
identifying um, secret clandestine uh, sleeper cells or, or groups of terrorists who might be trying to do something um, covertly or clandestinely and trying to find ways to get intelligence uh, to get inside those cells and, and, and bust up what they were doing before they had a chance to succeed. Now, as I described it uh, in our, uh, a, little bit, a little earlier in our conversation, the, the far more likely scenario here inside the United States is an individual deciding to act on their own. That means that the most likely or the best defense against that kind of individual in many cases will be the people who live and work and um, and exist day to day in that person's environment. So the signs that a person might be on the verge of carrying out that kind of act are going to be apparent to someone in their immediate environment far earlier than they're going to be apparent to us here in Washington, D.C. at the National Counterterrorism Center. So a bystander, someone who is a, a friend, a, a coach, a peer, a, um, a teacher, um, a relative of a potential extremist individual, they're more likely, in fact, most likely to be able to be um, alerted before something like this happens. And we're going to be increasingly relying on their contributions to our national security in preventing these kinds of attacks from happening. So see something, say something is still very relevant to you. I, I, I very much so. And that, that, that phrase, while some folks um, sometimes occasionally made fun of it, as far as I'm concerned, it stands the test of time and it, and it really it, it applies all across the homeland security spectrum, whether you're talking about uh, a potential terrorist act or, or indeed any kind of criminal act. So um, talking about people who would go out and do this kind of thing, many of them have been uh, inspired by the Islamic State Organization, which three years ago, a little more than three years ago, um, uh, announced its so-called caliphate uh, was, was, was up and open for business in Syria and Iraq. It appears as though that whole thing is crumbling. And one of the real, really big questions that I have is where are they going to go? And what will that mean the day after? What is that going to mean the day after that place or that idea or that supposedly that organizational tangible hub doesn't exist anymore? What is that going to mean for the U.S. and for the, 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 the counterterrorism situation here in the U.S.? Well, part of the challenge is, is that I don't think there will be a single day after moment when we think when we think about our war against ISIS, um, and particularly the war against ISIS in Iraq and Syria, there's no question but that we've made tremendous progress in our effort to shrink the size of the caliphate, to squeeze ISIS leadership into smaller and smaller spaces, to put more pressure on them, and to make it more difficult for ISIS leadership to organize. Um, attacks in, in various locations around the world. That's, that's the good news, and it's undeniably good news. On the, the companion piece to that, though, is, of course, that the ideology that, that ISIS has spawned and has advanced um, has already, is already, in a sense, the, a genie that is out of the bottle. And, and many of the individuals I've spoken about who are inspired by that ideology or motivated, motivated or mobilized to act by that ideology are in a sense already in motion. And so um, the, the defeat of ISIS on the battlefield is an important and critical step in shrinking the, you know, the amount of terror we're going to see around the world, but it won't shut it off all at once. Um, you might think of this as having a lag effect. We're going to be dealing with, a, uh, with the ISIS ideology for a significant period of time, even after ISIS is defeated on the battlefield. So speaking of that defeat on the battlefield, where will those 
remnants or people go, do you believe? What do you think they're going to try to do? Uh, they're not just going to go back home and say, Mom, I'm sorry, you think? It's an interesting question, and it's one we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, there's no cor- it's true that over the course of the, the, the several years now of the conflict in Iraq and Syria, thousands and thousands of, of fighters from around the world have, have flocked to Iraq and Syria to join the conflict. On the one hand, you could assume that when the conflict's over that these individuals will all go back home or try to go back to some place uh, outside of Iraq and Syria. I think we're not so sure that's the case anymore. We believe that the, the majority of these individuals will likely stay and fight for the caliphate and in many cases fight and die for the caliphate on the battlefield in Iraq and Syria. But even a, a modest number or a, a significant number of these individuals who escape or depart from Iraq and Syria will present a significant threat to us. Because if some of these individuals have you know, highly specific skills or, the, or well-developed personal networks in, in overseas locations, that will be of, of serious concern to us. That's part of what I wanted to ask why. Um, you, you said a little bit about it in overseas locations. You think they're looking for a new operational base or bases, or do they even need them? I don't know that I could point to any single location and say that's the place where ISIS leadership will um, will concentrate uh, in, you know, in a new location after being dislodged from Iraq and Syria. What we have, though, is an ISIS global network right now that extends to quite a number of countries across the globe. And you have both places where ISIS has declared a formal branch of the caliphate in in a number of different countries around the world, but also a number of of countries around the world where there is a significant ISIS presence and there are well-developed ISIS networks or populations of, of people who are sympathetic to ISIS. So all of those places are places where potentially you could see ISIS supported terror taking place. But I don't know that I could point to any place and say that's going to be the new headquarters for the ISIS organization. And that that's not something that, that just may not be the model of the way terrorist organizations operate uh, in the future. Um, as you know, uh, for much of the period after 9-11, we looked at the, the tribal areas of Pakistan as being the headquarters area for the al-Qaeda movement. And we've obviously looked at ISIS uh, being headquartered in, in Iraq and Syria. That model may be changing. They may be looking at a, uh, we may be looking at a movement, uh, an ISIS movement that, um, that has global presence, but not necessarily a single headquarters location. That was a part of our conversation with Nick Rasmussen, director of the National Counterterrorism Center on Target USA, episode 71. You can go back and listen to the rest and hear exactly how close he was to what happened in New York City in his predictions. Meanwhile, when we come back, we'll have a conversation with the man in charge of hunting down ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. He's hiding, he's underground. He's, He's afraid to come out. And when he comes out, he records his messages and hides again. That's General Paul Funk, commander of the Combined Joint Task Force, Operation Inherent Resolve. We'll also hear from Sir Julian King, the EU Commissioner for the Security Union, about what ISIS is doing now. So they have been very effective at exploiting the internet to propagate their pernicious radicalizing propaganda. And I don't think we should expect that to stop. That's when we come back on Target USA. The National Security Podcast.
I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. On this program, we've been talking about the New York Halloween terror attack and links to other terror trends. As was pointed out, the New York attacker said he was inspired directly by ISIS and ISIS's leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. On the line with us is General Paul Funk. He's the commander of the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve, and he's joining us via telephone from his headquarters in Iraq. General, first of all, I want to thank you. Can you hear me okay? I hear you great. It's great to have you on our program. Thanks for taking time. First of all, give us a look at what you've been able to accomplish in the fight against ISIS. I'll give you a couple of facts. Over 6.9 million people have been liberated from the clutches of just an evil, evil, evil organization. Over uh, 93,000 kilometers uh, or square miles have been liberated. 4.4 million people freed in Iraq. 2.5 million freed in Syria, and a continuation uh, to defeat one of the most evil organizations ever on the face of this planet. One of the things I've been hearing about you and your team is that you've been taking something away from the enemy every day. What does that mean, and how does it work? Well, we do it through a variety of means. We use our weapon systems to take something away. We've actually, uh, let me give you a couple of facts there, and uh, we've... uh, We've taken 65 senior-level leaders from ISIS off the battlefield. We've done targeted strikes uh, against uh, drone developers, weapons researchers, drone pilots, and, uh, and seven others just in the last week alone. We've degraded ISIS operations, destroyed headquarters and logistics bases, IED and car factories, and we've... Uh, cut their oil revel, revenue by 90%. So now we're back clearing. We're going to chase these guys. Just a prime example in Telefar this last week, uh, the, uh, the Iraqi security forces cleared over 350 homes uh, where they eliminated several IED factories and over 20 suicide vests, over 100 IEDs, and found over 100 mortar rounds. That's just in the last week in one small place. So we are taking things away from the enemy every day. Part of it's also the global coalition. These guys, the leaders of ISIS are running. They're, they're, uh, they've, abandoned their, uh, they've abandoned their people, they've abandoned their fighters, and they are actually running from, from the coalition. Okay, two questions on on what you just mentioned there. First, the skill level of the enemy. You talked about technical capabilities, technology capabilities they have. How how would you assess the skill level of this enemy based on or compared to what you faced in the past? This enemy now is 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 morphing into something else. They're going back into a network based uh, organization, but they are. uh, This enemy is evil. It's ruthless, and it and and actually. it, it actually is filled with criminals and thugs and just uh, people that don't respect human life. They clearly had some highly, highly evolved technical capabilities to do some of the things that they were doing to present some of the challenges that you face. Is that right? Uh, yeah, they, they had some capabilities that uh, we, that we are uh, taking away from them. That's, that's exactly right. You mentioned as well that leaders are running. I know you probably have yes. heard this question more times than you would prefer to count, but 
the one big fish or one of the big uh, leaders of this organization is still out there somewhere, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. What are your views yep. on that, where he might be, and, and why he's still out there? Uh, well, because he's hiding. He's underground. He's, he's afraid to come out, and when he comes out, he records his messages and hides again. So you believe he's underground, literally? I believe he's, I believe he's running around. I believe he doesn't feel like he's got any kind of safety. I believe that he, he knows he's being hunted to the, all parts of the end of the earth. Deer Azor is the place that I keep hearing that uh, many think he is. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, that, that could in fact be the case. And if he's there, our SDF partners will find him. Does it matter if he's out there or not? No, like I said, the leaders have abandoned their people. Blunt and to the point. That's General Paul Funk, commander of the Combined Joint Task Force Operation Inherent Resolve. General, thank you for your time on the program today. Thanks a lot, Jimmy. You'll be hearing more from General Funk in a couple of weeks, right here on Target USA. Right now, we're going to pivot to Sir Julian King. He's the European Commission Commissioner for the Security Union, and terrorism is a big part of his portfolio. As luck would have it, we spoke to him six days before the New York Halloween bike path terror attack, and we asked him specifically about what has changed in recent months as it relates to the European Union's fight against terrorism and the tremendous challenge they've been facing from online radicalization and foreign fighters returning home. What's changed? Well, some things have changed. Uh, and as the threat changes and evolves, we have to be ready to adapt our response. And that's what we've been talking about. How do we need to adapt our response? So uh, the squeeze on so-called uh, Islamic State and the so-called caliphate uh, has, has progressed since we met earlier in the year. Uh, but as they're squeezed on the ground, I don't think we should imagine for one moment, as it were, that the terrorist threat uh, goes away. Uh, there will be some challenges connected with uh, potentially returning foreign terrorist fighters. Uh, but we, I think we can also expect uh, Islamic State, as they come under pressure, to um, revert to things that they do well. So they have been very effective at exploiting the internet to propagate their pernicious radicalizing propaganda. And I don't think we should expect that to stop. So we have to look afresh at what we can do to tackle uh, online radicalizing material, because we've seen over recent months in Europe uh, a series of attacks, um, not necessarily by complex groups, teleguided or commanded from Raqqa, uh, but often by uh, lone individuals who've self-radicalized as a result of this propaganda material that's been pumped out. So it's really, really important that we do more to close down uh, that space. On foreign terrorist fighters, uh, as, as the action on the ground um, has moved through Iraq and into Syria, uh, some of those who traveled from Europe to fight uh, will have perished. Uh, if they keep fighting, that is a, you know, it's a serious risk that they run. Uh, some will seek to move elsewhere to continue what they consider to be their struggle. Uh, and I think there is some uh, evidence that they are are moving to theatres where there are other jihadists, um, Afghanistan, uh, Yemen. There's some suggestions they might move to, to Libya and elsewhere in the Maghreb, uh, which is why it's very important, and we take this very seriously in Europe, uh, that we should have the closest possible cooperation uh, with 
uh, our neighbours and partners, uh, for example, in the Maghreb or even uh, a bit further south in the Sahel, uh, to help them deal with the fallout of returning foreign terrorist fighters there. Now, some may also seek to come back to, to Europe. Uh, I don't think you should exaggerate the numbers. We don't know precisely how many, uh, but we need to be ready to, to tackle that. One of the key questions that came up during our interview was, what about the borders between the EU countries? There are 26 of them that are a part of a, what's called a Schengen area, which allows passage through those areas without passports. It's something we know that's been abused by terrorists and criminals alike. So we have reinforced the controls of our external borders in terms of knowing more about who's coming uh, in and out. We just this week voted a new scheme to have uh, a US-style entry-exit control system, uh, and that complements the arrangements we'd already made, that everybody coming in and out of the Schengen space, whether they're Europeans or not, have their documents controlled, not just for their identity, but also against our EU-wide databases, law enforcement and other databases. So we've reinforced external frontier controls. Uh, and we're also reinforcing the exchange of information between, between law enforcement and intelligence services across European Union in order to try and deal with this security threat. As well as the security threat, uh, there, there is a wider social challenge because some of the people who might come back uh, are, are not necessarily combatants. There are non-combatants, some women, uh, and also, also for some European countries, quite large numbers of children who either were very young when they went or indeed were born uh, in the caliphate. And dealing with people who've been traumatised by their experience from a very young age is, is a big social challenge. It's going to be a big challenge to give them the help and the support that they need to de-radicalise them uh, and to, over time, try and reinsert them into society. So let me ask you a few questions. You've laid out a bundle of things here, and I'd like to break down a few Please. of them. Let's start with uh, what you said about ISIS perhaps um, retreating to the Internet. They've been there all along. Yeah. What's going to be different this time, you think, if they're retreating to the Internet? What are they going to do now on the Internet that they haven't been doing already? No, no, sorry if I, 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 if I use the word retreat. I didn't mean to suggest that they weren't there already. Right. I mean that when somebody's under uh, stress... Right. Uh, they revert right. to things that they they have a track record in. Right. So they're going to continue to use uh, the internet as a means of continuing their struggle, even as they come under strain on so, the ground. So, so how do so you? So it think doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be doing new things on the okay. internet, uh, but that the disappearance of some of the structures that they've had in Iraq and Syria shouldn't lead us to believe that we don't face a continuing challenge with online propaganda right. and radicalizing material. They have had a very successful franchise, more successful than some of their predecessors. They've used these means yeah. of communicating better than, than Al-Qaeda did in the past, right. for example. And we've seen over the summer uh, a series of attacks. We've had 19 attacks, jihadi-inspired attacks in Europe uh, this year, and 60, more than 60 people have lost their lives. We mourn every single victim. The fight to stop terrorist groups and those inspired by them from launching attacks in the West is an ongoing fight, and King and his American counterparts recognize it's going to be a tough fight that's going to go on for a long time. But King and his counterparts all around the world remain confident that eventually the fight over terrorists will be won, but it can't be won 
without vigilant citizens who speak up when they see something that looks unusual. That's it for this episode. Coming up on our next program, whether it's terrorism, anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, intelligence, or the U.S.'s own counterintelligence drama that's playing out in the Congress, join us on Target USA for the latest. Thank you for checking in with us. Follow us on Twitter at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. That's T-U-S-A Podcast. And if you have any thoughts about programs, send me an email at jgreen, one word, that's the letter J, the color green, at whiskey, tango, Oscar Papa, jgreen, at wtop.com. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Podcast One has crime and mystery with shows like Cold Case Files. Unsure of how his victim was killed, the doctor completes his autopsy with more questions than answers. The Serial Killer Podcast. A little boy, as it turned out, was the kidnapped Billy Gaffney. And crime in sports. He's pulled over in Dallas and found in possession of a crack pipe. Let's just say the lawsuit didn't go anywhere. He didn't win. <laughs> Exclusively on Podcast One and Apple Podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.